Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay. Then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is writer-director Michelle Garza-Cervera. Her debut feature film, Poissera, The Bone Woman, is currently available on VOD. Welcome to the show! Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. Very excited to talk about this. <laughs> uh, we're so excited too with both your movie. I've been uh, I've been dying to talk to you about this movie because it really it really affected me when I saw it back at gosh was it Fantasia I think that I saw it at, um, and I just I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. So thank you for joining us. Um, let's start off kind of talking about Hoy Sarah though. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about it in case they have not seen it yet? Of course, of course. I'm so happy to know that you watched it in Fantasia because that was one of our like highlight screenings, I think, because it was such a huge auditorium. And Wesera is my first feature. I don't, I'm don't. i based in Mexico City. This is where I'm from. I, I live here all my life. And, and I did uh, many short films before Wesera, all within <laughs> the horror and the sci-fi genre. And this this was this is my first feature, but I I was cooking it since uh, with some friends of mine and especially with my co-writer Avia Castillo since 2017. It's wow, a okay. psychological horror uh, that speaks about the moment of this woman uh, that when she's becoming for the first time uh, a mother, 
and this this uh, curse uh, named La Huesera uh, starts uh, chasing her and her whole life throughout the process of her pregnancy. So that's a little bit of, of Huesera, the bone woman. <laughs> So one of the things that um, I, I see a lot of people have been when, – when they write about this movie, they talk about the themes of motherhood and kind of pregnancy horror. But the thing as a, as a queer man that like really attracted me to this was the way in which your film kind of – I would say subverts the kind of thing that we typically see in horror or like in movies where it's like – I because I, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. But like back when, when I was growing up in the 80s, like a lot of times queer – uh, themes were subtext. And a lot of the movies that I used to, that I grew up seeing, it was like the queerness would enter the movie through subtext and it would end up being destroyed by heteronormativity, like heterosexuality. And so as I'm watching this and I'm, and I'm watching this pregnancy horror kind of unfold, there's also this, this queer storyline that kind of reverts that where it's like, she was kind of forced into heterosexuality and, by the end of the movie, it's almost as, well, I don't want to spoil it, but, but like it kind of, I, I, I just really dug how it sort of subverts that thing that I'm used to seeing in a lot of horror movies. And so I'm curious about the, the queer um, thematic part of that and how you came, how this, this story kind of came about. Yes. Thank you. I love, I love your lecture uh, or like <laughs> the, the, the way you um, digest the film, because honestly, like, I, you're nailing it in the sense that I didn't want it to focus specifically in the motherhood aspect or the pregnancy aspect of it. I wanted to challenge the whole mm. domesticity and the, the whole concept of path to happiness that we're sold and that we're almost forced to subscribe to. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I wanted to build a character that had subscribed to that whole path of life that everyone tells us like society tells you this is gonna take you to happiness yeah. and i wanted to create a curse the horror itself i wanted that to torture that character in order to take her to the other side which i don't want to spoil but right. in the sense of her queerness that in a sense that it's, it's closeted i wanted that to actually be a blanket for the character like like because sometimes many times in horror like starting from characters as frankenstein when we see a a broken character we we um how do you, how do you say like we we like what what is on the other side it's loneliness and mm -hmm. kind of like a miserable lonely life no one to connect no alternative uh which is heartbreaking and and in a sense i wanted to give that light like those like she, she has, it could, it could have been like this, like A to B, but then I wanted, no, like, that's not how life is actually. And that's part of what is liberating of life that we actually have like a vast amount of options and dissidences of ways of living. And, and I wanted some characters that actually embrace queerness that what I love of queerness is that it doesn't have to have a, a named path or like a structure. Right. And, and that's what is so liberating. And, and I wanted her to embrace that aspect. And I wanted these characters around her to give her that breathing or that freedom, uh, which actually get, helped her give the strength to to combat this curse that is breaking her apart. Yeah, because like I think my my favorite part of the the movie is, and I, I'm not sure exactly 
at what point it happens. Like it, I, maybe the end of the first act. I'm not 100% sure. But we have like the setup of, of her, her marriage and her pregnancy. And then we get this flashback to kind of her punk roots where, you know, she had like a pixie cut hair hairstyle and she's around a lot of queer people. And there's that moment. There's a moment where she could leave all this behind and and go with this woman that she obviously has feelings for. And she decides to stay and sort of embrace what I guess tradition or like what family has like taught her is the path for a woman. And so there's this moment where I'm like, wow, this is a lot more interesting than I was expecting going in with just the, a kind of a pregnancy horror movie. Yeah, 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 definitely. I want that actually, if you, if you see the film, it's not that narratively that was a necessary scene, you know, but for me, it's part of the part of the point of making a film that also doesn't have to follow these rules of like A or B, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like, no, actually we're plastic or like, how do you know, no plastic, elastic and transforming beings. And we have many aspects that cross our lives that formed us. Mm -hmm. For her, this was something that was basic in, in her personality or, or her identity. But yeah, like it, it comes with these concepts of growing up or uh like the right path of like always sticking with your family your blood your blood family all these concepts actually kind of like force us many times to take decisions that go against our own identities or our or our own um gut uh or instincts mm -hmm. and uh, and i wanted really and i feel like that's how like that's what i love of horror because that those feelings that are very hard to, ex to talk about because you you, you could have a, a character like like living this kind of life and, and having really no real motive, apparent motive to to be to be to be feeling like she's falling apart or breaking down. But then you can build a, an entity that represents those completely legitimate, legitimate validate or not to valid feelings, you know, mm -hmm. or valid emotions. Like that's what horror allows because all that that she's feeling is completely real for her. And it has to do with this identity loss that she put, uh, submitted herself to in order to to fool others' expectations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And well, to and me, I, I grew up in the punk scene. I'm sorry. And it oh, feels no. like I feels like that. Right. Like it feels like it's not about growing up. That I can't keep that forever. Actually, <laughs> it's not about age. Uh -huh. Exactly. You're not going to age out of any, you're not going to age on a, you know, the joke. It's like, it's, just, it's not a phase and people are like, you'll grow out of it. But it's like, no, like, what if this is a part of your identity and you grow into it more? Like, I don't think people talk enough about growing into something that you love and really embracing it. Like you're talking about with like punk music and stuff like that. Exactly. And of course it transforms, uh, but it yeah. has to do maybe with even like punk is one of the paths or like the ways to to achieve that when you're young, but there's many ways to achieve those kind of dissidences. I don't know if that's a word in English, but yeah, yeah. like alternatives, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned punk music. You you grew up in the punk scene? Yes, I did. Yes. I I started like I don't know, like going to shows when I was like 14, 15. Oh fuck. And then yeah. I played in different bands here in Mexico City. Oh really? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Actually the song in the flashback is one of my bands oh and, really uh, oh my gosh yes. that's awesome <laughs> that's wild but that's actually I, I i lived one year in london i didn't mention that and that year i made i had a band there called forra 
And there are three very close friends of mine. One of them, she lives in Argentina now, and the other one, they're from Spain. So we were four Spanish-speaking friends. Uh, so that's why we decided to make a band that year. And that, the name of that band is Forra. And uh, we actually have a seven inches out, like through a very good record label uh, in London that is called La Vida es un Mousse. And which is for us is like the best thing ever. That's so <laughs> that cool. Yes, thank what do you, you play? I, in that one, in that band, I played guitar. The ones in Mexico, I used to be my first band, Especia Fallida. I was a lead. Uh, I was screaming. <laughs> oh, and fuck then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And then my other, my other ones were guitar as well. So I only screamed in the first one, but I was very... How do you say in English? Uh, good to roll, like like demonic yes. kind of screaming. <laughs> yeah, I can send you the links, of course. <laughs> Please, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, we have we have some like records out, like tapes and oh bandcamp links. Yeah, <laughs> Michelle, that is so freaking cool. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So are you much. still in those? Are you still in the bands? Do you still play music? Well, no, because we, honestly, my cinema is so jealous. Like, it, it, I felt always guilty because I wasn't able to tour anymore or to practice every week. I'm still very close. Like, they're still my best friends. Actually, the punk scene in the show, they're all my friends here. Oh, and, uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that was all real. And I was actually dancing there with them. And yes, uh, but I do play. I have my guitar here and I use it more like a, a how do you say, like a relaxation mm-hmm. Therapy, I guess, every day, every time I'm very stressed with working, I, I sit down and play for a while. Yeah. That's, That's so amazing. cool. Oh my gosh, <laughs> well, that is so cool. I, I also loved this movie because, so I just got, I just got married. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a queer woman, but I'm married to a cis man. And this movie struck a chord because I am very, very much getting the, when are you having a baby? Like, when are you getting pregnant? And I don't want to be a mom. I just have no, it's not for me. Um, and this movie, I'm getting goosebumps. Like it hits this thing of like, not, you're not a bad person for not wanting a kid. I think in a, in a way that I, makes me feel so incredibly seen as a queer woman who is in a straight passing relationship and like, but doesn't want a kid and he does and he doesn't either. And it's just like, we don't get enough of this, of like women just like not wanting kid, like not wanting kids and being pretty open about it. And it just feels so good to be seen that way in the genre. So like, thank you. It's not really a question yeah. here. It's more like a thank you for like, <laughs> I love that. like watching it after yeah. getting married. And like my mom, every time I see her, she's like, so like, are you, have you changed your mind yet? I'm like, I saw you two weeks ago. Like nothing has changed. <laughs> like, please stop asking me. And oh it's like, God. it's so refreshing to kind of, see that on screen now well thank you as well it really like i've really gotten many comments after the screenings of like yeah people approaching saying thank you and 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 it and honestly it was also for myself because i also it's very violent right like there's like this uh like hidden agenda like i feel like it's kind of like it's like if you're against human reproduction or something like that like it's like everyone is like oh my there's like a deep rooted like concept or like that you're being selfish or that you're losing mm-hmm. something in life or that you're going to be miserable and, and lonely and die alone. You know, like there's very violent and scary concepts. And also that everything that comes with our re- reproduction years uh, as women as well, like uh, in the terms of like, it feels like a, there's like a narrative that tells us that we have kind of like um, di- disposable 
they like uh, how do you say like when food like until we have like an expiration date exactly that we have expiration date yes and that feel is like really it's it's a very terrible scary concept you know and it has to do everything with becoming or not parents and and that's that's very scary (laughs) well and it's like I feel like my body at this point in my life now that I am officially married to my partner like I feel like people just see me as a baby machine. You know what I mean? Like you just are a vessel for children. And it is so frustrating when you're like, I have so many other things. And like, I'm not selfish for wanting to continue to travel and to work crazy hours and like do all this stuff. But yeah, a lot of the time, like you are considered selfish for not wanting to like have a baby and go through the trauma of being like, and I think this movie also has the tr- just like the tr- physical trauma of both being pregnant and having a baby. Like, yeah, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Anyway, no, yeah, it it's so normalized, right? Because we all we all come from a womb. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, but it's really attached with so much sacrifice. Sacrifice from yeah, from from like yeah. There's so many aspects of our mothers. At least it happened to me when I started writing this project that I started trying to see her as an individual separated from me. And just that exercise is hard to do. You know, like try to understand everything that she had to hit or she kept away or like what kind of like in her line time, line time, like, yeah, in her past, like there's there's a moment when uh, a mother becomes uh, a mom and all those other aspects of her of her personality kind of like get like she's the only one that k- keeps that in mind because it's mm-hmm. kind of selfish even to talk about right like yeah. uh, it's very it, it's like a really a very vast and complex theme and of course I took it to all the extremes because it's a horror film and I wanted that but like also with so many of my friends that are parents or and specifically mothers there's so many so many feelings and thoughts re- regarding those areas that the film speak about that it's also another closet like they're never they have no safe space to speak about like how they feel or like these moments where they just want to run away and there should be like spaces also to speak about that that's also normal it's like it's it's a very hard thing to i mean to disarticulate if that if that makes yeah. sense yeah well and mary beth you had said kind of like the kind of the horror of, of being pregnant. And so I, one thing that, um, cause I rewatched this movie to prep just to remind myself of, of the, the film. And what jumped out at me the second time is the, the sounds like her bones, like when she's popping her knuckles and just the, the, the sound design. I'm curious how you kind of approached making the sounds so icky. Yeah. <laughs> With, yeah. Like bones and stuff. You know, like, uh, like we were very happy on, on script with my co-writer that we found this particular characteristic of the character that has to do with her anxiety and mm-hmm. what everything that she's holding, that is ta- like, it comes with a sound. So that it makes it very cinematic. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, I lo- and, and, and it was very particular because it's something that is very kind of grounded that you can see around with people. But then we build a whole entity out of that. And I love films when they are very, when they build a sound uh, world or like the atmospheres out of the real world, you know, out of mm-hmm. everything that could be that, that you could be hearing in your apartment, for example. Like, so we that was the rule with my sound designer. Like, we had to build everything in the film. Like, uh, in uh, uh, like uh, the base was Valeria's surrounding. So her apartment, the domestic sounds, her street, her building. 
And then, of course, the bone aspect. So, of course, we could mm -hmm. distort it and transform it and make it super fleshy uh, on, on moments, but always trying to keep it grounded, I guess, yeah. to her to, to her reality. In, a, in, in order to say that this reality, this kind of, uh, in Spanish, we have a word like cotidiano, like this daily basis life that mm -hmm. kind of becomes like a habit could gotcha. be terrifying as well. And um, yeah. and it's kind of like I never I never I don't like bringing like for example drone sounds or like otherworldly sound effects to my films. Like I feel like reality is more than enough to make something terrifying, right? And or like a bone sound that could be the only thing sounding. And actually, the sound designer, uh, what we recorded the most was uh, actual people that they know how to break like to crack their bones. Oh wow. Like he has a niece that she's a teenager, maybe 17. And oh my God, she's impressive. Like she can crack every bone of her body. It's impressive. So we wow. went, of course, from like from using like vegetables and like animal bones. But then at the end, because there's like the cover of the skin, you know, so that oh, is kind yeah. of like the, it's not it's the same. It's like, it's, that's exactly, that, that's something that the skin does that blocks the sound. So that's why we w went back to use actual people. <laughs> I just cracked yeah. my knuckle because now I'm like, wait, you're right. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Oh I didn't God. think about that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh my wow. God. That's yeah. incredible. Well, so, okay. So you've said that all of the shorts that you've made and your feature now are all kind of in the genre realm. How did you get introduced to horror? Like how old were you when you first saw a horror film? So I, I grew up in a weird house. <laughs> I like, uh, in the sense that uh, both of my parents were like, they studied architecture and they were industrial designers and they were very, I mean, kind of hippie, mm. like weird, like in a in the best way, you know. But they they had very weird objects. Like they were always they had a lot of tendencies to imagination and like mm. other worlds. Okay. I was very, I, I was very lucky in that sense that I grew up in a house that it was very open to play and games and every every weekend going to the theater or like expositions oh, or cool. or cinema. So that I feel like that, that I was lucky in that sense because I had a like a like a whole sense that I could be creative and that that was not something special from just from me because I feel like everyone could do it. You know like my my also my oldest brother he's also a, a artist a visual artist. Okay. Um, so I think that really now I've been doing ref, re, I've been reflecting about mm -hmm. it and I think that made me very like I was writing short stories since I was ten or eleven years old. Oh, cool! And I had a lot of tendencies to fantasy, like uh, of course, like like we're I have with my best friend, like that we're friends since we were five year old. I wrote stories to her that she still keeps, and everything oh. was very fanta fantastic, you know, like like very weird, <laughs> very crazy stories. And I feel like that always I always kept that. And then when I found punk. I, I kind of started watching a lot of punk films. More than horror films, I would watch everything that was within punk, you know, like kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show or mm. Velvet okay. Goldmine or like oh, like all yeah. John Waters, of course, like all yeah. kind okay. of like queer slash punk uh, world, like musical, like all that I was obsessed. Like, of course, I was listening to David Bowie and Ryan Eno and like I was all that like when I was a teenager. So I was 
that that's what I grew up loving, and I feel like that was the moment I I decided I wanted to become a, a film director. I was since I was like seventeen. I was taking every every class in school that that had anything regarding video, and it was very. I was kind of very. I knew it, you know. I I never thought about something else. Like I I, I immediately I, I finished high school. And I tried to get into film school and I didn't pass, of course, <laughs> the test. So I started working in short films of other people, like as a PA or as an art assistant mm. and whatever. But I was always, I was very into punk. And when I got into film school, I was very rebellious, I guess. Like very, like I was, I hated the, the cinema language classes and all that. And I hated most of my classmates because they were all very like Bergman and Tarkovsky and like all that. <laughs> Not that I hate those filmmakers. No, but, honestly, but, but I, I know exactly like, who you're talking, you know the kind of I people mean. you're I, talking about. Yeah. They, they look down on anything that's not those movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've told this I've told this story before, but um when I was in my twenties, I I had taken I was I was interested in writing uh screenplays and whatnot. And I took a, a writing class and of course I'm coming from a very genre focused, like I love horror and I wanted to write horror movies. And I got to this class and my screenwriter instructor's looking at me, he's like, Why don't you do like a boy and his dog story? And I was like, Why would I want to do that? I don't want to write about that. And they're like, Why why aren't you doing like a drama or like a comedy? I'm like because I have no desire oh, to write that. Yeah, because but I know those people. This whole idea that that you're doing like something bad quality if you're into mm -hmm. horror, right? So I exactly. kind of since since I was like more in punk and all that, I was I actually embraced it. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna do what everyone here is saying that is the worst thing. Like because I felt freedom. Yeah. I felt like I was a weird one doing horror, so nobody was kind kind of really. Uh, they didn't see me as a competition, you know, because of course everyone in film school is very competitive. And I felt like my I had my own thing, honestly. Like I had my own thing. I and 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 I love I mean, that. So punk and I too, felt, right? Just sort of like saying, I'm not gonna go down this path, I'm gonna go down my own path. That's that's yes, punk. It started like that and, and then of course I I started also to understand how how powerful genre is actually. Mm. You know, like how you can do amazing films and like say the most complex or difficult things through it as well. Because at first it was very, I was very, my first like exercises and shorts were very gory and very fun and wild. I see them and oh my God, I would do very crazy things. But then I love that I had that freedom and I was breaking every rule. And, and then I feel like I started understanding that I could kind of put everything together and do something that I was that was very meaningful for me so I just feel very lucky that I can I follow that path really yeah always grateful for horror saved my life <laughs> oh yeah hell yeah I do have a question <laughs> um what what is your like what would you say is your favorite punk band I am curious ah, do you have my one favorite punk band maybe I don't know if you heard them but they're from Chicago from Pilsen Los okay. Crudos Oh, no. Los Crudos. Oh, I think you're going to love them. They're actually quite queer as well. And in oh, the, really? Like, they're, yeah, Martin Crudo, like, the lead, uh, he, wow, it's, like, it's such an amazing band. They're actually Latin American, and it's, like, way, like, I, I, maybe, it's one of my favorite punk bands, but it's also one of the best punk shows that I've been in my life. I went to a Los oh, Crudos show cool. in Tijuana, so I'm, like, like I don't know, some some years ago, like maybe eight or eight years ago, and it was one of the best punk shows I've, I've been to because honestly, 
all the communities in Mexico from different punk scenes came to watch to see the so we were all there like we kind of gathered in hell Tijuana yeah it's like a big party show and and of course many from the from from San Diego and California like uh, Los Angeles like a lot of Latin Americans and uh, it was wild like for a moment I thought someone was gonna die like it was like this someone is gonna die in this show <laughs> because it was too wild like it was so wild that they could only play like five songs and they had to stop because. You, it was like a sea of crazy people, <laughs> but it was so oh fun. My God. So I would, if you haven't heard them, I really recommend. I think you're gonna love Los Crudos. Yes. Okay, okay. I'm okay. adding yeah. this to my my Apple yeah. list. I gotta I gotta <laughs> search them out. Yeah, and I love X-ray Specs. I feel that that was my favorite, my first favorite punk band okay. as well from London. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love that question. I haven't had that question before. <laughs> I'm now following them on Spotify. I'm a huge music like, nerd, and so whenever I find I someone... That. No, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Oh, that's um, so cool. Okay, well, we're going to go quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back and talk about Michelle's movie pick. When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break, the playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make. You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that. You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap. You can build yourself a homemade scratching machine or use a piece from your chest set. Go ahead, grab the queen. Scratch like a DJ with your record player. A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer. Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways. Thanks to scratchers from the California lottery, a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. And we're back! <laughs> All right, Michelle, what movie did you bring with you today for us to discuss? I read The Elephant Man by David Lynch. Okay, so I'm going to read a super brief synopsis before we jump in. But in The Elephant Man, a Victorian surgeon rescues a heavily disfigured man who is mistreated while scraping a living as a sideshow freak. Behind his monstrous facade, there is revealed a person of kindness, intelligence, and sophistication. Yeah, okay, so bring us bring us back. When, when did you see this movie? How old were you? Uh, what about it scared you? And why is this your Scarred for Life pick? You know what? Like, I had a friend that she's still my friend uh, here in Mexico City. I, I was in elementary school with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, her father was a big uh, cinephile. That's a word in English? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he would play films, crazy films to us that were not for kids. Like, I remember <laughs> watching Wild Strawberries or, like, like films that, like, I can't believe, like, we were seven, you know. But he would just put them there and we would sit with him watch, to watch the films. And so one day he played The Elephant Man for us. And uh, and I I do, I was, like, seven or eight. And we wow. speak about this, my friend and I, saying, like, it did traumatize us back then. Mostly because... We, we, we had no, of course we had, we were seven. We had no mm -hmm. idea what we were watching. And, um, and he was serious and kind of like hermetic. It's not like the kind of that, that he would explain us like what was going on. So we started thinking 
that the elephant one was really we were expecting him to be the monster you know like it was like mm. we we we, yes. we watched the film as it was gonna be a horror film so i remember being very impressed at first honestly like this is a film that i remember having the memory for the first time of my life of understanding how mean human beings can be you know and it, yep. it broke my heart i remember we were crying like it was strong for us because it it kind of like it was the first moment that I realized actually the monster was the fragile and what, what was supposed to be the monster was completely the other like that was so clever of that film right so it it really it, it I do remember it as that moment where I realized like actually we can be the monster mm-hmm. and uh and that's that's something that I feel like it transformed me in a way I, I do remember the elephant man to give me that realization if that's the word like that reflection and mm-hmm. i understanding that yes wow i can't imagine seeing this being 70 years old like this is a this is a heavy movie let alone <laughs> the kind of the topics that it's dealing with it's just a it's a very heavy film i can't like i was watching you know like my my movies were released you know like jason or fry or freddy or that kind of stuff for when i was like seven or eight years old and I don't think I could have handled this movie as a seven-year-old. I feel like I I didn't know how to handle it back then as well. Maybe maybe it wasn't yeah the cleverest thing to for us to watch it like back then, you know. <laughs> but I do think I but it in a sense like it did kind of gave me a another filter, you know, in 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 ways like I feel like I understood evil in another way, but in. Mm. Like it, it, it did broke something. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. So I'm, I'm curious. Before you watch this movie, what kind of what kind of movies were you typically drawn to as a kid? No, completely other things. Like I yeah. was, uh, as a kid. Hmm. Let me think. My parents were very like into um, Kurosawa, for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I do remember like watching them, like uh, some Kurosawa films, but that were not very impressive. Like it was not very, like, they were light. I didn't understand them. They were just right. like, they would pick things that I would, uh, they were not very violent, I guess. But of course I was also watching Matilda, that I loved yeah. Matilda. And I love the uh, Disney, of course. Like I was, uh, like Aladdin was maybe my my favorite film for a while <laughs> when I was a little. I love girl. that you were watching, you know, kids' movies and then Kurosawa movies <laughs> as a child. So we, cool! Like your parents were just like, "Yeah, you can read. You can read the subtitles. Like you're fine." Yeah. <laughs> we have weird parents. Like, like, I, like some of my first memories that I have watching a Kurosawa film, or maybe that's what I kept of my father, is one Kurosawa film, I feel, I feel like it's, came, it's, it's, it's called Ishiguro, uh, yes. which is kind of like a painting. It's kind, it's kind of like, a, like you're inside of a painting, right? Mm. So, and mm-hmm. that was very be- beautiful, actually. I, like I was not even like, uh, like scared or anything about that one, I guess. But yeah, yeah but The Elephant Man was something that, uh, it was hard to digest because the moment where it gets very dark, it's very dark. And it, uh, yeah, it's a very dark film. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm curious, being um, a seven year old watching this movie about um, with some really 
great special effects, but just the the kind of there there is an element of I would say horror in the way in which they present the Elephant Man initially, John Merrick initially, with like him being in the um with in the the kind of carnival and he's like kept chained up and it is played almost like like a horror movie in that, in that regard. And then it sort of starts to peel back the layers. I'm, I'm curious what your, your first thoughts were um, seeing John Merrick as a kid, if you remember. That's very clever because I, like, I do think that the, that the film is uh, built of course, in a very intelligent way in the sense that it, it makes you be a monster at first, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, they build this whole suspense for a human being in this whole like morbid, terrible expectation, they build such an expectation that you're dying to look at him as yeah. well, which is completely dark. And then yeah. you, they, it hits you, and you're you're scared of him at first, and impressed, right? So it's very, it's it's a very moving film because it kind of, of course, the spectator is part of it, like you are part of it. And uh, that's why it's maybe even worse for a kid to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> because, because remember the the opening, I rewatched it again because I, I, I knew we were going to watch, so I wanted to have it fresh. And the opening scene is maybe the one that most affected me uh, because it's like this moment where the, where her, what, where the, her mother is being attacked by an elephant. Do you remember? Yep. And it's very yeah. Lynch-esque because the film is it's not yeah. so Lynch. Lynch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's more narrative, right? But that scene is so Lynch, and it's like this, like slow motion, and that image of the woman being attacked by the elephant is the one that I I, I have locked in my mind when I watch it as a little kid. Like I was like, oh, it was very scary for me. It's yeah. it's so surreal, and that is like as you were saying, like um when we think of like Lynchian things, we're not thinking of the elephant man in terms of the story because it's, it's so narrative. It's so um, weirdly like his most conventional film, but like he kind of bookends it with these surreal moments involving his mom. Mm-hmm. And it, it is terrifying. It, it, and I can imagine being a kid and not, not knowing what you're getting into. And that's the first image is like the kind of superimposed elephants with their eyes and then her being attacked. It almost looks like she's being ravaged by it. Like there's, yes, it's weird visual imagery. And I can't, I mean, I can't imagine seeing that as a kid and and being like, what is going on? Yes, 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 yes. And I understood later, of course, in life that actually what happened is that the mother died in birth, Mm -hmm. in birth, in labor. Right. Uh, but it's kind of like saying like the an elephant killed her. It's very yeah. Yeah. macabre. It's very macabre, and uh, and I do remember honestly because I was a little kid and and, and like reading subtitles. Like it was like the whole, we were not really understanding, you know. And yeah. I remember being for long t- moments of the film at the beginning. I was very fearful of the elephant man. I was mm-hmm. really scared yeah. of him. And um, and then when it started to change, when I started seeing him as a victim, it was horrible. It was like, because kind of like, it makes you be part of it. What I was trying to say, yeah. like you you yeah. were part of that, that for, for what they're being attacked later, right? Um, so it's really, it's, it's very, maybe the more narrative Lynch film, but it's not less dark, I guess. No. Yeah. Well, and I think what I was, I noticed because this is my first time actually ever seeing this. I'm a huge David Lynch fan, but for some reason, this was like one of the only films of his I hadn't seen, which is wild. But you're 
for it's like the first 30 minutes you don't see him you see you either like hear people whispering about him or you see him being you see his shadow as they're presenting him to like the group the the gentleman doctors group and what i think lynch does so well is he he really makes it obvious that you are staring at this guy. Like, as he does the close-ups of all of the men looking at the body, as Anthony Hopkins' character is very scientifically, like, breaking down this person who is not being treated like a person. Like, he, you really feel this kind of voyeurism that you're participating in. And then when you finally see him, it's when the nurse brings him that food and he's just, like, in his pajamas on the bed and he's screaming, like, he's terrified. And you're like... Oh, it is kind of, it's jarring at first because you're seeing his his face for the first time, but at the same time, he's in a, a position of weakness too. Like, and it's this reveal that isn't necessarily dramatic because it's not like this dramatic music of like, oh my God, his face. It's much more subtle than that. And I love yeah. that because I think that removes the spectacle. It, it's it's Lynch doing such an incredible job removing the idea of spectacle around the elephant man and that he is a person who deserves just as much love as anyone else. And I think that's what I love about Lynch is I think Lynch has a lot of empathy. And I think it's so easy to see in this because it is, you know, so much the theme. But I think you see that a lot in like Twin Peaks, especially around Laura Palmer's character. Are you a Twin Peaks fan, Michelle? Yes, 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 yes. I love Twin Peaks. I've been wanting to rewatch that whole thing, actually. Yes. So- Terry's watching it right now. I won't spoil anything, but like, you know, we get introduced at the beginning to like a girl wrapped in plastic, another dead girl on a beach. But then as the series unfolds, you learn about her. And then obviously, um, fire walk with me. Like he, he, you learn so much more about her and you have an, you develop this empathy. Completely. She's a complete human being, right? Like she, yeah, exactly. even, even if she's, she's not there, you can see many aspects of her life as a whole human being. Like it's very hard to judge her as, yeah. uh, as many of those narratives with, uh, like rebel, rebellious women that deserve what yeah. happened to them. You know, like there's, there's like a very toxic. Yeah, that's very true. And I do, I do think like even like I love how we're talking about how David Lynch, because there's like a concept of, on, on, well, this I have built like this concept of, around his work that is kind of charged with evil or like cruelness. But yeah. honestly, I do think like there's like a very loving layer uh, in many of his works, right? It, yeah. I think so. And I think a lot of these people in his movies are people who are just trying to find some kind of kindness in the world. And there's not a lot of kindness in the world. And I think... There's a lot of that in his work, and I think it might be harder to see because, again, it's so surreal and it's weird, and his style of filmmaking is so incredibly unique and bizarre. But I do think, like, it is incredibly empathetic work if you look at it, like, and I Completely. love that about I love that about about him because he's such a weirdo. But I think, like, I think especially him as a person that you see on the internet, like, I think he just wants people to love each other. And I love that about him. And I think this movie is so (laughs) that in a really smart way. In a way, again, that he makes us think about monstrosity. And then he's like, ooh, but especially in 1980. Yeah, especially in 1980. Because, like, you know, I think if someone who did not, like, 
know about David Lynch or anything would watch this now and they'd be like, oh my God, like this is so simplistic. But it's like, no, actually, well, one, it's not. But two, like in 1980, having a narrative like this that is like very much confronting and not trying to be ableist and like not trying to be like wow look at the disabled person look at him go i think like this is such a special movie yes it's very radical it's very i, I also yeah. i'm also impressed by it being his second feature <laughs> after eraser head i love the comparison of eraser head <laughs> and the elephant man incredible like yes amazing. <laughs> yeah but it, you can feel like of course he was getting like these offers and this at, at, uh, attention right after eraser head but he still managed to make a great film and so in, in his own kind of uh, dark narrative, I, I guess. Like, yeah. like you can see, a, a, I mean, it's an amazing film, but you can see that Lynchian heart. And like, honestly, it's a perfect film. Like, like, come on, like the closing is perfect. It's perfect. And I honestly, I have to say that my memory as a child was that he passed away in 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 the in the in the lynching in the um, oh, you yeah. know in the yeah. scene in the mm-hmm. scene of the horrible scene in the in the subway you know and, yeah oh my god that scene it's terrifying or maybe maybe I even stopped watching it then okay. <laughs> because I oh. I built for a I built for a long time the idea that he was killed by uh, the mass of people wow. Oh, yes, shit. I, yes, but, but now I now that I watch it again and all, I, I realize like no, it's such a beautiful closing of a film. Like he finally has agency at the end of the movie. Yes. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I am not. I was not familiar with David Lynch's work very much. I had never. I had never watched anything of his except for Dune. Dune was my only, <laughs> for the longest time, the only Lynch film I had seen was Dune. Wow. I love that. Yeah. That was your very, only Lynch that's, movie. That's very cool. That's very cool. I love that. <laughs> Wild. Uh, because my mom was a huge Dune fan. And so they had rent, my parents had rented it one night and I watched it and I was like, what is going on with this? Like my, my, my kid's mind was like not able to, I think, fully put together everything that was happening in that movie. Because it's, it's a Not it's even a your adult movie. brain can really no. put together what's happening. He tried. He really tried, but it's a lot. But what's 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 interesting is that like last year, so one of my one of my um, writer friends, Joe Lipset, he he and I we're doing we're doing this podcast, and it's going to launch next month. But like it's this it's where we're talking about David Lynch films and David Cronenberg films because I am not hugely familiar with either of their work except for like maybe one or two pieces, and so we're going from the the start of both of their careers, and so. This is the second time in like six months that I've I've seen uh, Elephant Man because I watched Eraserhead for the first time and then we watched uh, the Elephant Man back in gosh September I think it was. Oh right. And I'm like, so I'm 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 working my way through his filmography and what a what an amazing what an amazing creator and what I love about this this movie and what I love about. At least the early Lynch. I'm not sure because, again, we're only up to Twin Peaks. We just started doing Twin Peaks in our recordings. But, like, his obsession with um, industrialism, there's, like, a lot of fact focuses on factories. And this – because, like, in um, in Eraserhead, it's almost like a post-industrial world where everything is, like, just – 
gross buildings and smokestacks and just horrid. And there's that image here. There's a lot of imagery here in this movie where it's like the men are being injured by machines. There's like the, the, the big soot stacks coming up out of like the chimneys. There's a lot of focus on that kind of industrial revolution type feel to it. And so it's, it's interesting for me to watch this movie as sort of like seeing because I, I think a lot of people see this as sort of like this one in Dune is sort of like an outlier of his movies because it's not the sort of weird kind of um, eraser head or blue velvet or Twin Peaks esque type stuff. But there is a lot of visual um, artistry that is going into this that is is so definitely Lynch. And so it's it's interesting to me to kind of start to go through his his career from the very beginning and sort of piece together what makes David Lynch tick. And this movie. I, this movie, I think, is just it's so it's so fantastic. It's so depressingly sad. I was watching it again to prepare for this and I started crying at the one scene um, where John Merrick goes to meet. Um, I am blinking on the name Trev's uh, Fred, Freddie Trev, Trevez, Trev's. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Trevs. I thought Trees. he was called Jeeves. I thought he was Jeeves. And I was like, OK, oh my God. <laughs> where he goes to to meet. Um, uh frederick's uh wife and they have like tea and he's sitting there <gasps> and- oh my god this part too i was, I, was I, wrote down, I wrote down why am i crying and i'm just like sobbing sorry terry yeah. sorry no it's i i'm i'm, I'm glad that i'm not alone because it's like this this one it's this first moment of of pure humanity that is being because like up until this moment Everyone is treating him as a spectacle, even Freddie. Like, I, I love it later on in the, in the movie. He kind of questions his own. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. But like before that, you know, it's whether he's being showed off to crowds that are paying for a freak show or he is, you know, being stripped and paraded in front of um, all these scientific minds. And everyone thinks he's an imbecile. Everyone thinks that he is, uh, you know, just not there, that he is just a a mass of, of, of flesh almost is how they kind of treat him. And there's this moment where he's sitting down with, with uh, Freddie and his wife. And it's like, she starts to like see him for who he is. And the, the line where she's, where he's like saying that his, his mother was so beautiful and he must be, she must have been so ashamed of him almost because of how he yeah. looks and her line of, you could see just on her face, just like it crushing her. And then her saying that, that there's no way that her that his mom would be ashamed of of him, and it's just like, oh yes, my for god, being such a loving man. I know it's beautiful. And when he says that, if only she could see me now, having spending time with such good friends. Oh my god, <laughs> it's too like. And I was reading, you know, because I like I love I love I love this conversation, guys, because it's kind of it made me study too, and how it was John Hurt, the actor, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how much he had to do with Little because the prosthetics were were like taking all over, right? And yeah. with, like the way he was just delivering the lines and very little movements, it was so, it was so much. Like it's, it's really a fantastic performance as well. And like, yeah. it's just, they're showing, like, you know, they're giving him access to their lives and it's just in such a small way. Like, oh, we're just showing him family pictures. And he's just like, your family is so no, like your faces are so noble. And they're like, wow, I thought the same thing. And he's just like being so incredibly kind about their family and just looking at the pictures. And he's like, I've never had friends before. And like, I wish you could see me with friends. And it's yeah. just like, 
so something that and again like we take for granted and he is just like i'm finally just getting to go to sit at a friend's house and talk and not have to be laughed at and gawked at like i am just being treated like an equal that can just sit down and have tea and look at photos and i can tell you i have a mom i had a mom too and like i have a picture of her because like fred freddie's like oh yeah i want to see your mom like what and was Mm -hmm. like oh a study part but then he's like she you know she's in a row and i want to be good for her yeah. I've tried so hard to be good. And that moment right um, there, I just started crying. I was like, I- yeah. I'm over. I can't. <laughs> I know. It's really heartbreaking in many. I'm sorry, guys. I put you into the heartbreaking. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I just, we, I just think, like, this is going to sound so cheesy. Sorry. But, like, we need more empathy now more than ever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this is a movie, like, while that is very traumatizing to see as a child, like, it showed you empathy in a way that yes. you probably had never seen it before. Like it kind and of maybe, showed you. And maybe I didn't yeah. understand. It's kind of similar to Frankenstein in the, in yeah. the sense yes, that. Very, yes, very, yes. Frankenstein makes you cry as well, right? Like you, like when you understand that actually the monster could be the other side and you could always be in that other side. That's, that's something, that's something that I think like everyone should be, could, you know, like, discussing since we're kids maybe maybe it's important to see how we we have that potential uh as well you know yeah yeah, it was traumatizing but on the other hand i do think like that that moment as a kid and understanding like oh the other ones are the ones that are terrible you know like um especially being in school you know where you're surrounded by bullies and like like yeah. like that like the whole thing like it's really it's really well crafted in the sense that it turns the gaze you know and it does yeah, yeah. and uh, Mary Beth you you said something that just sort of like I didn't even realize it until you were talking about it is when when Freddie's like oh yeah I want to see your your mom too and I just realized as you were talking no one's really asked him no one's really asked nope. him at all of what what he's thinking because uh, like in the beginning, we we see him and he doesn't talk. He just has the the sort of like wheezy breath that we hear. But no one is asking him how he feels or anything about him. Like I, you would, I would think that if you're talking with this this man and you're curious, you would be like, "Do you know who your mom was? Who was your mom? Do you have anything about it?" But it hasn't come up until this very yeah. moment, and it's this moment of. What what I think I, what I think is so powerful about this movie is that it's sort of like the idea of giving humanity to get humanity because he he's perceived initially as a monster and so he says how he doesn't talk and because Freddie's like why I mean why didn't you talk to to him and he's like because I was scared because I've been seen as a monster for so long is basically what he's saying and it's by the time that people are showing empathy and humanity towards him that he is able to come out of his shell and show yeah. the world just how intelligent and how kind and how much of a wonderful person there is hiding behind what people see as monstrous. And it's just, just the way that, that Lynch sort of peels back that layer is just, it's so, it's so powerful yeah. to watch. And you know what I feel like for the character of Anthony Hopkins as well, right? Because mm-hmm. we're kind of, we're kind of looking at the film through his eyes, right? Yeah. Like he's a loving man. But for a moment, he doubts if he's also a monster. Yes. Right? Like, that's why I think that scene is so powerful. Uh, like, when, when he's at night and he can't sleep and he's asking, like, am I on the same mm-hmm. as the abuser, right? And that moment, I feel like that's when he really becomes, 
the most lo loving, like the most empathic, because yeah. he, he's also accepting these other sides of himself of like, from where am I approaching him? You know, you're Merrick, from, from what aspect? Like, yes, because, because also it's very violent when he's, like at the beginning when he takes him to to the university or like the mm -hmm. to the scientific it's such a violent scene right and and yeah. he presents that, that he's presented only by his shadow remember that very yeah it's very tough and you see the like actually I feel like the main character is actually Anthony Hopkins right because and we're mm -hmm. kind of like we, we're like we're taking his hand throughout the process of from where do we look to John Merrick right and and he also passes through the process of having a a terrible approach to this other human being, right? And and but that change is very is beautiful in in, in that in that also in that color character as well. Well, and I yeah. also love that Lynch never really shows us Merrick's full body unclothed because you know we hear about him being covered in tumors and like he you know one of his his genitals they make a very big point like his genitals are not affected at all, but like. They again. They never try to make him a spectacle. Uh, it's, we see him like in clothes, and we obviously see his head. But again, we're never like. And there's a little bit at the end where you kind of see him partially naked when he's getting abused again. But again, we don't. His body isn't made to be a spectacle. He is free. Like we, the only part that is really a spectacle is when you see the shadow. But again, like it's just the shadow. We're not seeing it. We're just seeing the outline. And I think that that is something I'm just not thinking about, about how like that is such an important choice to like not have a scene where like you walk in on him getting dressed and he's naked and you see his body covered and stuff. But instead of just like, he's a person, he just looks a little bit different, but he's yeah. a person. And I think that is, again, like shows the empathy and the intelligence of Lynch here and trying to really like make us understand how we look at, at look at people in the world, really. Because I mean... We see, I agree that um, Treves is the main character, but I also think there's interesting times where we switch to Merrick's perspective, especially when That's he's true. like, when he is um, either walking by himself through the hospital or when he's making the, the cathedral out of paper right. and how he is like yeah. seeing the world and trying to recreate it for himself. And it's like, we're seeing the world a little bit through his eyes. And I think that that is really interesting about how he is now, his perspective on the world is also changing too, because I think he's seeing that not all people are cruel as well. In a, in you know, a, I feel like you just, you just touch on a point that is very interesting in the film because you kind of press, they kind of present, David Lynch presents this character as a shadow, you know, as a concept more than what he really is, right? Like little yeah. by little, like like he yeah. talks about like how yeah. the world sees only one aspect of, of this person, which is the terrible thing that the mind does, no? That we want to lock everyone in one concept that we have, right? And then right. it's very beautiful how you say, like we discover how much more is behind that. And in that way, that's so beautiful, the whole thing with the cathedral, that he only yeah. sees the... The little the spire, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then he builds the other whole thing. So that's, I mean, I just understood that thanks to this conversation. But it's beautiful <laughs> because he creates something amazing out of only being able to look at a little part of that, and that that's the whole point of the film. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm starting to realize this too. But the thing that I, that like I, I've been like thinking about, and it, I think this conversation has sort of like um, melded together, is this idea of 
because when in the beginning when he is like locked up and he is seen as this other you know he he acts out as if he is a monster that everyone else sees him in but the moment people start to see him as as a as a human being and he starts to like see how people live like i love the the again going back to the scene with freddie and his wife where he he notices on the mantle there's all these pictures of family and there's all this kind of stuff and so then he starts to see oh this is this is humanity people are showing me uh what it means to be human and then all of a sudden he's decorating his room with with pictures of he has mrs kendall the the actress that i want to talk about her too because i love i love her but there's she comes and he so he has her picture up he starts making pictures of other people up there so he starts making his room a home whereas before he was like a shadow of a person and he was living a shadowy existence because people saw him as not human but as he started to become more human and he starts to like embrace it people start to see him see past the kind of physical deformities and seeing him as as the human that he is and so it has this interesting trajectory through it where it's like visual as well as narrative kind of showing the change of like how important empathy is and how being empathetic toward other people makes people makes both you and them more human in a way as cheesy as that might sound but it's it's um I don't know. It's it's so fascinating. I know it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, because like that's true. Like he embraces the same gaze that people are giving to him at the beginning, because mm-hmm. like they they they're not giving him any other chance to show any other of the right. as, like any any aspect of 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 what he really is, right? And it it only comes with love. It, yeah, I know it sounds cheesy, but it only comes with love. And empathy that is able to become who he is, really. And yeah, it's, it's a very, it's very profound film, actually. It really is. It's a, it's a lot yeah. more than I even was giving it credit for until we had this conversation, honestly. But yeah. okay, Mrs. Kendall, her her scene. She is this famous actress. She comes, um, she meets him, and they they do a line from Romeo and Juliet, and it's so, I don't know, it's so touching. And it, it, I feel like there's so many moments where this this movie could step over bounds and become modeling or like, you know, a little, a little cheesy or a bit too much, or I'm not even sure what the right word is, but I I feel like there's so much restraint here that kind of, it comes up to this line, but then he kind of pulls it back. But Mrs. Kendall played by Anne Bancroft, who is phenomenal in this. I, I just, I love that scene so much. Well, and I was like super anxious, like, oh my God, she's going to laugh at him. She's going to like force herself on him in some weird, like it, I was like, had I was like thinking of Edward Scissorhand vibes of like the oh, creepy mm-hmm. neighbor who like forces herself on him. And I was like, oh no, because I, yeah, a lot of this movie had me very tense, like, and there's a, obviously the really awful climax at the end where he's being attacked by people. But, like, I was on edge of, like, what fucking horrible thing are people going to do to him now? But she's one of the first people. Well, and again, because we're introduced to her reading the newspaper about it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, God, is she, like, collecting like, weirdos to, right. what, like, to, and to tell people she saw? But that moment is very sweet in a way that I was very surprised by. And I think that... It's interesting. I was so surprised by her kindness. And I think that maybe Lynch is playing with that as well. Of Like, mm. I think he knows what he's doing and being like, ooh, what is this woman going to do? What are her intentions? And then she like gives him a copy of Romeo and Juliet and gives him a sweet kiss on the cheek. And he's like, see, you assumed the worst in people. And it's yeah. like, fuck, you're right. Like, I really did assume the worst in people right now. Like, very much so. Yeah, it's actually like, it's very clever because it's kind of like very, it builds a lot of suspense, right? Because we're fearing yeah. for the character. 
And then, like, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but have you watched The Last of Us? Are you watching it or you yeah. don't care about it? Yes. Oh, yeah, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. because this, this, this just reminded me to the third episode where you're always, I was always expecting. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I was always expecting. <laughs> it's just such a masterpiece, right? But we were oh. always expecting, right, that something terrible was going to happen, that you couldn't trust the other one. And it's just so fantastic when that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> yes. Well, oh. talk about agency of characters. Like, again, I think that it's like, it just goes back to the end of like Lynch making sure that Merrick does have agency eventually. And that like in The Last of Us, episode yeah. three, they have, I'm going to cry, they have agency in their deaths. And I think I'm there's something. I, I just. I just think, like, the power of giving characters that we don't see have this kind of agency is so important. Like, Completely. a lot of the time we see gay people dying on screen, like, in tragic ways, but in, sorry, spoilers to Last of Us, but, like, it is so much more than that. And then in here, I mean, jumping to the end, sorry, Terry, sorry, <laughs> like... We see him. No, but it's very true. Like he has the most magical night of his life, and she takes yes, him and to this beautiful play, and people are applauding, and they're looking at him as a person, and then he's able to kind of die. What is like he? Because he, he, I've gained myself. He said, oh, "I've I gained myself." myself. And I was like, oh "It's God. over. I'm I'm done. I'm so I'm, <laughs> I'm over." It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I never want to watch it again because I'm going to cry a million times. But I agree. Wow, just... I love this. It was such a. It, this is really a good, very good exploration. I love like the similarity we found with that episode. That's right. Like, and, <laughs> yes, and it has to do with like more. It, like like yeah. Sorry, if it, it sounds very like we, we can be very cheesy here, but of course. Um, it's really poetic in the sense that in both cases, there's like a, yeah, like an agency to rest. Like I can finally rest more than death. It's just like, I can let go, you know? And that's, that's amazing. Like I can really fully trust. Uh, and that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> well, and especially because we see him get like, you know, these horrible people note, like the horrible guard is like taking people to see him, bringing women there. Like they pour liquor down his throat. They beat him up and then they kidnap him and sell him again. And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, we're getting oh back to God. the tragedy of this whole thing. And while we have that for a bit, we do see him escaping the, the freak show. Like that. Oh my God. No but it's so, England. such a powerful scene, right? Sorry for interrupting, but it's such a powerful mm -hmm. scene. That one where they collectively set him free. It's beautiful. It's very radical, yes, I guess. Exactly. Cause yeah. like they throw him in the cage with the monkeys and then all yeah. of the other circus freaks are like, no, we're getting the fuck out of here. Like this is disgusting. And they get him out and they put him on a boat and they're like, luck. Like we are the people in the world that need the luck. And he's able to travel back to London. And we have that really terrifying moment where he go like the, you know, the known moment of I am not an animal. I'm, not, uh, I'm a human being. I oh am a man. God. Like, it's like this, like f him finally, like trying to reclaim something in front of strangers of like, I'm not a fucking animal. And it's just like, so again, like John Hurt's performance and his ability to really convey so things with his voice so well. Because mm -hmm. again, like the it's there's not a lot of facial expressions, but his ability to speak his lines with so much emotion yeah. is just like yeah, that that scene <sighs> is a masterpiece. Really, it's really terrifying. 
And honestly, it's so built in a sense that is the other's gaze that is the monster. It's really scary, right? Like the way, like actually like since the beginning, right? Like every scene, every collective scene or like masses, you know, like when the uh, when the person, like when there's not one gaze that is like a collective gaze. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, yeah. like, it, it feels very monstrous, right? And very... The mob uh, mentality. Like the, again, yeah. and again, like spe- thinking the of mob. thinking yeah. of Frankenstein in both mm-hmm. instances where they mob the hospital, but then also when he's getting mobbed at the train station, all because some fucking kid is shooting spitballs at him and saying, "Oh, I missed her. Why is your head so big?" And he is yeah. just trying so hard to be like headphones, like not headphones, you know, like the equivalent of like headphones on, head down, like mm-hmm. don't look at anybody. And then yeah. you know it it spirals out of control when he accidentally knocks a girl over and it's just these people immediately like ripping off his, the, the hood that he wears and all this stuff. And it's just, it's so, I was worried that was going to be the ending, but then I saw there was like more time left. I was like, Oh, thank God. I was like, are we really going to end on this fucking depressing note of this guy being so close to being home? Like he finally has a home and he's not going to get back to it, but he does. And that's okay. that's why I was like, okay, yeah. cool. So yeah, we still have a little bit of that. like a happier <laughs> look. I love a good nihilistic movie, but this is not one that I wanted to No, 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 no. Like, this, no, one, no. <laughs> this one couldn't take it down. It would have been terrible. No, ab- no absolutely <laughs> I, not. I'm going to apologize in advance because uh, I went <laughs> I went looking to see if I could find out information about the real John Merrick. <sighs> And what makes me really sad, and I'm so I'm sorry I'm going to bring this down a bit, but what makes me really sad is that the real John Merrick, um, even after death, is being seen as a curiosity in the medical field because Ugh. his bones were bleached and put on display in the University of London's medical school. Some of his <gasps> oh, flesh really? was saved for medical study, and the rest of his remains was buried in an unknown grave. And oh, it wasn't no. until... It wasn't until 2019, because I found this article on history.com, where a biographer of Merrick says she found where the rest of his remains were buried. And he was probably buried. Is There's no definite um, answer to this because it's an unmarked grave. But it sounds like he was buried in the same cemetery as Mary Ann Polly Nichols and Catherine Kate Eddowes, who were two of the women Jack the Ripper killed. And so oh, he's no buried. Way. Really? So he's buried wow. in this in this cemetery, and it's what's called a common grave, where there are people below oh. him and people above him. So he's not on his own, and it's just whatever tissue is not being studied. And yeah. it's it's yeah. so sad when you think about that because we have throughout throughout this whole movie we have him being picked apart by either the kind of freak show crowd or the 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 scientific community. And it's sad. It's it's and again, that's why I'm, I'm sorry for bringing this down. But it, it's sad to me that after his death, he's still being looked at as a, as a medical curiosity and not as a human being. And that just meant that like reading that final article on history dot com just like kind of broke my no. heart all over again, because it sort of deflates what the movie is trying to establish. And it just makes me it makes me so angry and so sad. I know, I know. It's 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 impressive, like how the film didn't know, like how that how the film didn't help to change that. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's such a clear reflection. I, I have to add something that I read recently, and it's not, and it was before, like a couple of months ago, 
I I worked in a TV show where I I was kind of inspired by um uh, oh sorry what's his name uh, the writer oh my god sorry it's that he it's a it's a French writer in the style of Edgar Allan Poe uh, who wrote the the hand the the short story the severed hand uh, Mopassant uh, Mopassant okay. do you know yes yeah, yeah, so, I think so he yeah. was. He was in the same hospital as the Elephant Man, as, as, oh. as John Merrick. Yes, and they were very close friends, like best friends, oh. apparently. Like they, like they would gather. Like I would, I would send you what I found, but they would gather every night, like just to talk. And and he was like one of his best friends for a long time. Mopasan um, was was uh, like in the hospital due to psychiatric. Um, oh. issues oh, and, wow. and I think that's beautiful I, I just I just wanted to say like I feel no. like I'm sure I'm sure he had amazing people around as well that were there for him and, and I feel like that's kind of like there were people that were able to not be in that other horrible side guy like mm-hmm. that is the, the mob I guess that we call right. it here the mob yeah. The other the other thing that surprised me as I was looking into this movie is that this was produced by Mel Brooks and he like purposefully left his name off of the the kind of pr- the production part of it because he didn't want people to think it was going to be a comedy. And I just think that is it's so interesting that that the person that we know for, you know, Dracula Dead and Loving It or Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles is producing this very empathetic, very serious movie and he has like the foresight to realize that if his name was attached to it, people would look at it as a comedy. And I just wow. I think I think that's so fascinating. And it's because of Elephant, yes. or not Elephant Man, Eraserhead, that, that this all came to be. Because uh, I guess Mo Brooks' assistant was a huge fan of, of Eraserhead and showed it to him, and he fell in love with it. And that's kind of how this all came to be. That's a, that's an amazing story. I love it's that. So I love cool. that Mel Brooks loved El- Eraserhead. Right, like, that right? to me is incredible. That Mel Brooks yeah. loved Eraserhead. Like, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> talent that's recognizing fantastic. talent. I know. <laughs> uh, um... We could probably talk about this movie for hours and hours, but should we should we wrap up and give this a rating out of five, Terry? Sounds good. All right, Terry, how many Lynchian masterpieces out of five do you give the Elephant Man? I mean, it's in the rating. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's 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 funny when I when I watched this back in September, I was thinking that this is a really a really good movie, and I was I was like, if I had to assign a score back, then it would have been somewhere between a four and a four and a half. But as I'm having this conversation now and I rewatched it and I could appreciate it more on like just in an enjoyment enjoyment might be a strong word, but I did enjoy it, although it's it's not a very enjoyable subject matter, if that makes sense. But as I'm watching this and I started to like realize just how how empathetic, how moving and how powerful it is that that the story kind of presents one thing and then peels back the layers and kind of shows both the horror and the the humanity within the viewer of it. It's just, it's so, it's so well done. I have to give it five. What about you, Mary Beth? It's a five for me. I mean, this is the movie that they, that the, that the, this is the movie that forced the Academy to make an award for best makeup at the Academy Awards since there was no category for it. And it was such an incredible piece of work to make John Hurt look like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so applause for that. But also just like I've talked about, this is such a beautiful look at empathy and it's not a cheesy kind of rumination on like, be kind to people. It's just, it's so much, it's lynched. So it has like, you know, 
whiffs of that, but it's also very him. It's got this beautiful black and it's filmed beautifully in black and white. It has like this kind of like a few surreal elements, but it's just like, I think if you really, if you watch his other films and are like, what the hell is this guy doing? Watch the elephant man and really see like Lynch is deeply empathetic and wants people to understand like how to love other people and just like give decent, like extend human decency to people. And I just, I love Lynch. I love this movie and I'm so glad that I got to watch it finally. Um, Michelle, you have the final word. How many Lynchian <laughs> masterpieces out of five do you give the elephant I man? Mean, honestly, I, I agree with Terry in the sense that before, I guess when I started seeing the other David Lynch films and all, I would have say four because I kind of love like all the craziness that there's in the other one. But yeah. now after this talk and after watching it again, I do relate to it in a way much profound way that I thought. And I think like, I'm very glad I picked this film because I feel Me like too. it really goes along with so much of what I think it's important in filmmaking and in, in many ways. So I definitely a five. Yeah. Hell I yeah. love it even Hell more now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your movie and The Elephant Man. This was such a great conversation. Um, are you on social media? Where, If you are, where can our listeners find you? Otherwise, what do you have you'd like to talk about? The floor is yours if you have things you can share, if you want to talk about um, where your movie's at and all that kind of stuff. Yes, thank you so much. My social media is mgarzacervera. Okay. And I am in Twitter and in Instagram. You can see there like all about what's going on with Huesera, the bone woman. Uh, in the U.S., you can find it in VOD, and in May, it's going to be available in Shudder, so that, oh. that, that's exciting. And uh, and if you're in Mexico, right now, it's in cinemas, in theaters, so hoping for more weeks there. <laughs> and yeah, and in Canada, I think it's it's going to release soon as well, so please be, like, you, you can see in my social media. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with the elephant man? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. Cause you want a fun break The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that You could even grab a laser pointer And use your cap You can build yourself a homemade scratching machine Or use a piece from your chest set Go ahead, grab the queen Scratch like a DJ with your record player A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer Cause when it comes to scratching There's a million playful ways Thanks to scratchers from the California lottery A little play can make your day Please play responsibly Must be 18 years or older to purchase play or claim ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is the briefing room? 
It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.